Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. Minda Hartz is the founder of The Memo, a career development company for women of color. She's the best-selling author of two books and the host of a weekly career podcast for women of color. In 2020, she was named LinkedIn's top voice for equity in the workplace. At what point did you stop trying to work within the system and start trying to change the system? Yeah, that's a great question, Amy. You know, it's funny because I didn't know I could work outside the system. I thought that I had to continue to try to figure out how to work within it. And then I realized that I had this epiphany that the system was never created to for me to succeed. And I could try, try, try as much as I want, but the system is just not created for that. And so I had to disrupt that system in order to get what I needed to no longer just thrive, but to survive, or I'm sorry, not to survive in the workplace, but to thrive. And so I just, it took me about 10 years to figure out that this system was not going to, was not going anywhere and that I was going to have to do something differently. <laughs> What was the specific incident that really pushed you to leave your position and and make this change? Yeah, well, I spent 15 years in corporate America and I stayed at one, uh, one place for about 10 years and that was the only thing I kind of knew, but I realized that that wasn't the best, right? So I thought, okay, well, I know what it feels like in this environment. Let me see if it's a different environment that might feel differently, right? And maybe it's just the people that I'm working with Um, And then when I went into this new environment at a new job, I realized, oh, there's some of the same inequalities popping up in this space as well, but it was a little worse than what I had before. And that's when I started to realize that this system is broken. And I was again, found myself in another environment where I was the only black woman working. And when you're the only of anything, you are going to experience inequalities if you don't have people who are emotionally intelligent and who have done their own internal work to see how we make an environment work for everybody. And in that environment, I started to experience uh, depression, anxiety, um, a lot of just mental health issues. And that's when I realized that no job is worth my sanity and that I'm going to have to figure out how to Um, not just help myself, but to help others who might also be in a similar situation so that this doesn't become the status quo forever. What is workplace trauma? It's interesting because when I was going through these things, Amy, I didn't even know I was in trauma, right? I had normalized the uh, experiences I was having as a woman, as a woman of color, as a Black woman. And so I didn't even know that it was trauma. I just thought, "Mm, this must just be what it is. And I started to accept it. But I realized any environment where you don't feel safe it is going to cause trauma, right? So people who are not showing you dignity, respect, and equity, people who feel like they can dehumanize you at the drop of a dime, right? Then you are going to experience trauma or you're going to experience post-traumatic stress disorder if you've been in an environment, whether it's work, relationship, uh, friendship, any type of relationship that's causing you to feel like your dignity has been stripped away from you, that is traumatic. So many people have to stay in their situation because of financial reasons, right? They're supporting themselves or their families. How do you counsel a person who is in a similar situation to the one you were in who just is is in a financial situation they can't get out of? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Sam. And most people, I think most people are in those situations, right? We're not in a position to leave. And so I kind of joke around about it in my book, right within saying, how do you heal while you're in hell, right? How do you figure out how to work this out? Because even in my situation, I was experiencing anxiety and depression, but I couldn't leave. I didn't have enough finances. I was a single woman, you know, like other people were relying on me to help them, you know, so I had all of these responsibilities and I just, I felt like I could not leave. And so I had to read, redefine what success looked like in my current situation. And I said, how can I make this environment work for me? So what can I do to what can I get out of this situation to help me prepare for my next best thing? I've made the decision that I can't stay here forever. Uh, you know, I do deserve better. Uh, sometimes we don't even, we've been in such a bad state that we don't even feel like we deserve a better environment. And so I said, okay, my company has um, professional development stipends. What certifications can I get? What stretch assignments could I ask for? And so I started to just say, let me turn this on its head a bit and say, let me focus on what I can get out of this, who is supporting me in this environment and just make make a bad situation a little bit better for myself. So you worked for four years while you were building your company, The Memo, on the side. Did you plot out a timeline? Did you think it would take four years to fully make that transition? You know, I didn't, I didn't know how long it would take, but that was the little bit of space that gave me some hope right? Because I was experiencing such a bad workplace that building the company allowed me to dream a little bit bigger to let me give me a little reprieve from what was going on. And so I was hopeful, Amy, I was working feverishly, hoping that it wouldn't take four years, but it did take that long. Um, but it was worth every, every second, because now I can experience a different situation. And now I can be a role model for somebody else to say, your life doesn't have to end in trauma, right? You don't have to spend your whole working career traumatized. Will you share a little bit about the memo for those of our listeners who aren't aware of it? Yes. So while I was going through a very traumatic situation, I started to think about my story and how I was suffering in silence and wondering if others might be experiencing this. And I started the memo just started as a weekly newsletter uh, called Memo Mondays. And I would write about my experiences every Monday. I had a a mailing list. It probably just started with my mom and my brothers as uh, subscribers, you know, and I thought, let me just continue to do this. Um, so every Monday I would put out a memo about a certain piece of the, the puzzle. So maybe it's the wage gap. Maybe it's about, you know, toxic coworkers. And I just started writing about my experiences. And the more I started writing about them, then I started to find that other women of color were experiencing similar situations, but we never knew how to articulate it, right? We didn't know if we were making these things up. And so the newsletter turned into career boot camps, the boot camps turned into podcasts, and then we just created the suite of um, services to help women of color in the workplace. And then all those memos that I had been writing for four or five years ended up turning into uh, the best-selling book, The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. Now, a lot of your uh, clients are now corporate America, ironically, which is um, must feel at times like a conflict for you, right? You're 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 talking about the problems that are inherent and probably not as quickly changing as you would like, but at the same time, they're the ones writing the checks. How do you manage that? I manage it pretty good, Sam, because I look at it from a different perspective. When I was in corporate America on the other side of the table, I didn't have the influence that I have now, 
right? So now I sit on a side of the table where I can be honest, where I can be the voice for people who aren't able to use their voices right now. So I actually get to influence corporate America in way better ways and more impactful ways than I could when I was in there on the other side of the table. So now I'm like, okay, I'm actually doing work that actually makes it better for the current generation and the future generation. And I'm talking with the stakeholders. I'm working with C-suite executives, which is something that I didn't have the ear of them, you know, five years ago. And so I now I, I realize that I actually have even more of a important responsibility to use my voice in the way that I do so that I can influence these rooms so that the table can be made more equitable. When you work with corporate clients, and you're working with the teams that are hiring you or the C-suite or management levels, and you're working with people who are not women of color, do you recommend that they read the memo and rights within? Absolutely. Uh, I say that how can you help solve for your employees if you don't know about their experiences, right? Two things can be true at the same time. We might work at the same company, but we experience that company very differently. So how can you manage a diverse team if you don't know what your diverse talent is experiencing, right? So reading the memo, reading White Within will help you be a more, we use the word soft skills, but really to be a more equitable leader. Those are strong skills. Those are leadership skills, right? And so how to have those difficult conversations. And so I think any leader should be reading uh, about the experiences of others, not just themselves. Are you optimistic? Do you feel like things have changed in the last five to 10 years? You know what? I am very optimistic, actually, because when my book, The Memo, first came out, a lot of companies were like scared to bring me in to talk about it. They're like, this isn't going on here. We don't have this problem, you know? <laughs> and so they were very scared to talk about race. And so, you know, fast forward in the last two years, companies can't get enough of talking about it. And now we can actually solve for racial inequality now that you're acknowledging that it exists, right? So there was a time where we weren't talking about it out loud, and now we are. And you can't solve for what you're not willing to confront, right? And so it doesn't mean we're all racist or sexist or homophobic, but it means that if sexism is here, then racism probably exists here too. Then ageism probably exists here too. So we have to acknowledge that these things exist so that we can create solutions. And now we're talking about those ways to create those equitable solutions. So I'm very optimistic about the future because we weren't talking about these things even three years ago. And now a quick break. How did you first build your audience? I know that your newsletter started with your mom and your brothers, but but how did you amass such a big audience? I think that's one of the biggest challenges for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I sometimes sit and think, Sam, <laughs> I mean, how did that happen? Uh, because it is kind of crazy. Uh, but it really was, I think, vulnerability and transparency. I think I was really talking about a certain thing that wasn't was a little taboo, right? And so others started to say, wow, actually, that's my experience too. Or I've seen that, experienced it, or I'm a manager. And I do have people on my team that are black and brown women. How do I show up for them? And I think I was just talking about things so vulnerably, only because I was hurting at the time, right? And I didn't know any other way to, to talk about it but to tell the truth. And I think that truth-telling and authenticity is really what helped build the audience today. While you were speaking authentically and vulnerably and talking about a very hard situation, you were still working in a hard situation and you were doing something that was kind of public. Like, did anybody you work with read the newsletter at the time? Were you afraid of that? I was. I was. Um, I remember, uh, like, the year before I ended up leaving my job, we had a, a staff retreat. And one of my colleagues around the table said, 
oh, you know, Minda, she had a picture with Michelle Obama like last week. Don't we all want to hear more about that? And I literally wanted to like slide under my table uh, that, that I was sitting at because I didn't necessarily want to talk about that right now. And in that moment, I said, it, I owned it. I said, yeah, I actually work on uh, a business on the side where I'm helping advance women of color in the workplace. And I said it out loud. I owned it. And even my manager, who was causing me a lot of trauma, I said it with him there, you know, and, and I think people at that time, they were just like, oh, Minda, pat you on the back. That's really great. But they didn't take it seriously. And, and you know, now the joke is kind of on them. But, <laughs> but, but, but I realized that I was a little nervous while building, Amy, but I realized that who is going to be a beneficiary of my courage? I'm a beneficiary of so many women who have come before me, who've made tough choices, who stood in their truth. And I want people to be a beneficiary in my career. So I'm willing to take this chance to build and still keep my job and go from there. And so I just continued, but I realized that um, the benefit outweighed the risk. Where does that courage come from? I mean, your childhood, you grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Your family was earning $25,000 a year at one point. What was your childhood like? It was a struggle, you know, uh, it, it definitely was a struggle. But one thing that we had was a lot of love, you know, and when I was in these certain environments, I realized that I know it might sound kind of like pie in the sky, but love, right? Healing, that respect that was lacking in all of these different environments. And um, I realized that I deserved I, I brought so many tools to the workplace that I just wasn't being valued. And my parents always put in me and my brothers the value of self, right? And so I had kind of forgotten it along the way because I thought that I had to endure that because I thought that's what corporate America was going to be like for me. But what I realized was I I deserved better. I deserved to experience the workplace like my colleagues were experiencing it. And I just remember those things that my, my parents always taught us um, about ourself and our self-worth. And so I had to tap back into that. But we grew up very poor. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And, and I just realized that I had come so far that I could not lean out and let this dictate the rest of my life. And so I just had to kind of like Beyonce says, turn, what is it, your lemons uh, into lemonade because I just knew that it was bigger than me. What did your parents do? My father, a majority of my career, or I'm sorry, my growing up, he was like in janitorial work. And my mom, uh, she would work in like group homes and um, things like that. And so they had very, you know, I guess, working class professions. Um, and, you know, we grew up on public assistance. And so, you know, I saw all these different things around me. But again, the one thing that I knew was my was my value. Even if we were, you know, to some poor, we still valued ourselves. And my parents instilled that in, in each of me and my brothers. And so um, I just started to remember that again when I was in the pits of the workplace to say, you know what, I still should be valued. Um, I'm a great employee. And so if, it's, if I'm not going to get it here, then I need to find a place where I am. How did you decide to go to college? It's almost like taboo to say it now, Amy, but it was the Cosby show, really, because um, that was the first time I had saw a professional Black family that was thriving, right? And so I'm like, oh, what is the main ingredient? Oh, college? That's exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> and that's the, and I kept that you know, in my toolkit. And, and that was the thing. I, I had no other um, experience other than seeing them. And and, um, and I'm thankful that I did see it because that's the thing that I held on to. And, and I'm fortunate to have had the 
insight as a young girl watching that on television to say, you know, I think college is the way that will get me out of this situation. Did your brothers follow that same path? They did. And I thought about them, too. I wanted them to be able to uh, see it uh, and be able to see it in real time. And so they also, too, went and got their degrees. And, and so it's a really beautiful thing. I want to talk a little bit about microaggressions in the workplace what is a microaggression? A microaggression, it's easier for me to say it this way. So when I was, one um, story that I often tell is about a manager, one of my first managers who I had burnt orange fingernail polish on. And he said, "You people love your bright colors. And he joked around for 15 minutes about black people liking bright colors. And that is, to some, it could be a micro or a macroaggression. But again, anytime where someone is trying to strip you of your dignity. And I know that some people will say, well, you know, so-and-so didn't mean any harm. Well, they might not have meant any harm, but what is the impact of what they've said on the person that they said it to, right? And I think that that's partially what we have to think about. What are the language that we're using? How are we engaging with people? And if it's stripping them of their dignity or making them feel less than or fearful in their environment, then that is traumatic. And that is a micro or macroaggression. Or what I hope will happen is we'll start to normalize and just say, call it what it is, right? It's sexism. It's racism. Like, I think we wrap these things in pretty bows because it makes it more palatable for people to digest. But at the end of the day, they are homophobia. They are ageism. They, you know, these are the things that they are. In your new role as an entrepreneur, do you still experience microaggressions? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, they still happen. But now I can decide if I want to address it if I want to keep working with a client or if I don't want to work with a client anymore. And it feels good to be able to make those decisions and those choices, but ultimately to also address them. The same fear that I had in corporate America, where some days, most days, I would never address it because I was fearful of losing my job. Um, now I can have a adult conversation with tools to say, you know what, I, I know you might not have meant this, but Let's have a conversation about that. And it's a learning opportunity, right? And what I hope is if I step up with courage and, and call it out, that that person on the receiving end will be courageous as well. And we can figure out how to make this work. I've had tons of, I remember um, not too long ago, a client called me a colored person. And a, <laughs> and I was like, I, I wanted to be like, oh my God, I don't want to do this anymore. But I sat with it for a second. I said, you know, I just want to make you aware that you know, we're not using that type of language anymore in 2021. And so um, this is what I would hope you would use and address me or others. And they were very apologetic, right? And it was a, a, a lesson learned. They took it and we moved on and I continued working with them. They never called me a colored person again. I hope they never use that with somebody else, right? But I think sometimes people don't know and we have to give them space and grace to have those conversations. Does it frustrate you that more people don't speak up and don't use their voice? You know, it's not frustrating because I know it takes right now it's risky sometimes to speak up. Right. Um, there is a risk. But I hope that we normalize people having authentic conversations, that there isn't a risk related to that, because what we know to be true in the workplace is some people can speak their truth and they don't have to worry about losing their jobs. You know, there are plenty of people who if they're having a disagreement, they say it. And they move on without their day, but then there's other marginalized groups that never get to speak their truth. And so oftentimes when I'm talking with leaders, they'll say, well, why didn't, you know, a certain woman say that this was a problem? She didn't feel safe enough to tell you that, right? Or she might have been trying to tell you, but you were missing on some of those 
some of those cues. And so what I'm hopeful is that, you know, each of us, if we all do our work and we learn and grow and listen, that we can have these conversations. And it doesn't mean that we're bad people. It just means that we want to make the workplace better. How can companies create spaces, rooms, real places where people can have those authentic conversations and not being afraid of being fired? Because I mean, because you can't do it otherwise. No, you can't. And, And I think that, you know, the buzzword is psychological safety. But what we don't often talk about is psychological safety doesn't just happen because we clap our hands and stomp our feet, right? (laughs) It has to be intentional. We have to create space where people feel safe. In any environment where people don't feel safe, there's going to be trauma there, right? Um, And it's patterns of abuse. And I think that um, in order for us to do that, we have to, in my opinion, really hone in on our training and our coaching. Do our managers and leaders have the tools and competencies to handle conflict resolution, to handle courageous conversations? And I think oftentimes we promote people with not the right competencies to even manage in the first place. So if if you've never had any managerial experience, you're not going to be able to have these conversations, right? So I think we really need executive coaching. We need you know, middle managers to be equipped with conflict resolution tools, because none of this is going to happen if people don't understand how to communicate effectively. If I could go back and start the Riveter over again. So I never had any management experience and I didn't have executive coaching at the beginning. And so any kind of difficult conversation was something I'd never really been trained to do in the workplace. Yeah. And most of us aren't, right? I think about early in my management career, I'm sure I've made some people's lives a living hell, right? Not intentionally, but because, you know, I was a star performer here. And of course, I could manage 20 people that I've never managed. (laughs) And then I realized that, oh, you know what, I I need to read some books, I need to get my own training. And, um, and I started to do that because a manager really has an opportunity to really grow a person, right? And the experiences that people have with their managers go on to dictate how they show up, if they show their authentic self, if they speak up or not. And so if we all say, you know what, could I be a better manager? What would it take, right? What would better look like? And I think sometimes we're so, it's so about ourselves. And to your point, Amy, we take it as an offense to us. And it's like, no, how do we make it better for everybody? Don't we all want it better, right? And I think that that's the piece of the puzzle that's missing when we talk about any type of equity in the workplace. Well, also, how do we learn to be a great manager, right? Like I, most of my management skills when I started my first company were from this amazing boss I had named Lucy Woltman, who I'm still close with today, but I was, you know, 22 when I worked for her and she was just an exceptional manager. And I feel like, you know, having a great manager is really the best thing, right? Like the coaching is secondary, but if you have some great managers as role models, that's kind of the most extraordinary way to learn how to manage. But again, to your point, Minda, I think, you know, there's, you constantly need to be sort of upgrading your management style because what worked 20 years ago is not necessarily going to work today. Yeah, you think about it. Many of us have had kind of the Michael Scott manager, right, from the office, right? <laughs> so we don't know. We know that that's not who we want to be, but that's who gets promoted, right? <laughs> so you don't always know. Or you have, you know, kind of the person who just, oh, that's just Tom being Tom and someone who never addresses conflict, right? And so we see all of these different models and uh, we take a little bit of them with us into into our roles. And so, and to also some people who are managing, you know, 50 years ago, they're still holding on to some of those tools that worked, you know, 50 years ago. And, and that's not, that's not the workplace we work in anymore. <laughs> you know? And now a quick break. 
You talk a lot about the workplace and how we can how we can build it and rechange it and reframe it. But what about your personal life? Who are your friends? Who do you hang out with? Yeah, you know, um, I'm glad you brought that up because I think while I was, you know, healing in, in hell and while I was building the memo, I really lost sense of self in those times that I didn't really nurture uh, the relationships that that I had in the ways that I wanted to. Or when you would go out with your friends, you were going to events, right? And so you don't really get to have that. And I would honestly say it wasn't until probably the last 10 months where I said, you know what, Minda, you you are a fun person, but you're not being fun anymore. (laughs) You do like to do these things. You have a sense of humor, but no one's ever seeing that anymore. And I really had to take a step back and say, let me go hang out with my friends who aren't entrepreneurs. Let me go back and rebuild the, you know, nurture these relationships because I do have a life. I want a more balanced type of life, meaning that I don't want everything to just be work related. I want to also have fun and enjoy my life as well. And so it's just in the last several months that I've actually went back to saying, let me have dinners with friends, you know, let me do these things. And it's been, I I feel like I'm 10 years younger because I'm actually tapping into this part of myself that I've neglected for such a long time. One of the things I'm wondering is, I think it's so hard sometimes as strong women to find good partners that are not intimidated by your success or your strength. How have you found that in your own romantic life? It's a hard thing because I'm actually transitioned out of something (laughs) that I was in for a very long time. And I think that the work can get in the way sometimes of that. And if you don't have um, partners or people who are invested in in you the same way that you're invested in them or that understand that this may, this is a portion of my life, but it's not going to be this way forever. Right. Um, and to support you and, and just root you on that, that means so much. Right. And so I think, um, for me, I, I realize more than ever, we talk about love languages. And when I really get down to the root of it, you know, as a partner, I need someone who gives me words of affirmation. I need, you know, that support in certain ways. And when you're not getting that, you have to make some difficult choices, just like I've had to make them in the workplace. I've had to make them in relationship too. And, but I think when we start to cultivate other parts of our life, then what's for us won't miss us, right? So right now I am enjoying a a single uh, life uh, style with my fur baby, Boston, but I know now that I'm cultivating other areas of my life. So what's for me won't miss me. And so I'm just enjoying all of it now. And um, as I was telling a friend the other day, we're in a very unique situation we don't have children, you know, we, you know, are thriving in our work, like we get to really ride this thing out and enjoy life in a way that we might not have been able to do it five years ago. And so I feel a new sense of excitement and, and I'm open to dating prospects, you know, um, I, I, and, and just enjoying that part of my life again. We are going to go to our speed round now. So we're just going to ask you a few questions and you can give us just quick answers. What are you watching right now? I'm actually watching Abbott Elementary <laughs> on, on ABC. It's, it's actually kind of funny. It's kind of like The Office, but in a school system setting. <laughs> so you like that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> what is your nighttime routine? Well, now that I'm getting older, Amy, my nighttime routine is really taking care of my skin. So I have like all these face regimens that I'm doing and I'm actually enjoying um, them. But um I recently went to a like kind of this retreat at Maribel in Arizona and I bought all these different like 
incense and just really lavenders and just making sure that I'm calm before I go to bed um, so that I'm not ruminating over like stuff that hasn't even happened yet. And so for me, my nighttime is really sacred. I put my phone on silence. I just really, I read, I just reflect and nighttime is really special for me before bed. If you could wave a magic wand and have one thing happen in your career, what would it be? I want to be a film producer. Uh, so I want to take my books to television. Where are you going on vacation when the pandemic is over? Anywhere. <laughs> I'll take anything, but I would like to go to Costa Rica. That that would be nice. <laughs> Who leaves you starstruck? Beyonce. <laughs> So Lou Burns uh, has been listening to this entire conversation, and he is going to ask our final question. I wanted to know more about your childhood and like your high school life and your college life. You seem like a, a very interesting person, you know, especially the, the topics that you talk about. But um, I actually want to know what you're good at besides the stuff that everybody knows, like writing books and being an entrepreneur and talking about topics that or taboo. What are you good at that you're not actually pursuing? I really like to cook, Lou. A lot of people um, who don't know me outside of, like, in real life, uh, I do like to cook. I am, like, a very domesticated person. A lot of people probably wouldn't get that about me, but I love to invite people over. I love to cook. I like to entertain. Uh, so that's something that I don't do as often, but I really enjoy cooking. Like, I'm one of those people that nerd out on Food Network and then try to, like, recreate that meal inside my house, you know? <laughs> so I, I really do love food, and I think that comes from my dad. He was the cook in our house, and so he was always cooking, and um, so I, I definitely love that, too. Even in college, even in college, I'd be in my dorm room with the George Foreman grill and a hot plate that I shouldn't have had, and people would come in and get food and all kinds of <laughs> And I love Lou's second question, which was, you know, what were you like in high school? I was a little like I had a lot of friends, but I'd always say that I was friends to a lot of people, but not a lot of people knew me. Right. So I'm one of those people that you might think you know a lot about me, but you don't really know me till you've actually had. So I have that ability to make you feel like, you know, everything about me, but you really know nothing about me <laughs> in some ways. And and I feel like that probably went through a whole lot of my career. But now I'm realizing that it's OK to let some people get to know you and and, and the different pieces of you. Um, and so but I always kept a lot of friends around. But um, and so I was a very social person. Um, but quiet, if that makes sense. Where do you think that desire for privacy comes from? Uh, are we are we turning this into a therapy session? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I, I think that desire for privacy probably comes from uh, growing up, I think, a little bit poor, you know, being I was often around a lot of people with influence, but our affluence and but I was, you know, um, low income. And I think I always wanted to present that I could still, I still belong here too. Right. And I think this privacy for not letting people completely know what's behind the scenes. Um, I had one manager that I always would say, uh, let people see your swan on top, even if it's an ugly duck underneath. Right. And so always presenting in that way. And so showing, uh, showing up in that way. And so I think that that's part of that privacy, not thinking that people would judge me if they really knew what was underneath the hood. Um, so I think that's part of it. And so I'm unpacking some of those pieces of, of myself um, on, in, on the internet and in my books and all, all those things. Yeah. 
Amy, I found that so interesting, the end piece where she kind of addresses how private she is. I thought it was really interesting too and kind of hard to get to, right? I mean, I think being private led discussion about privacy to be hard to get to. And one of the things that was really interesting to me in talking about Minda's family and her her childhood is like her parents must be the most remarkable people. I mean, they raised three first-generation college graduates. And it's just, I mean, that shows a lot of love, respect, care, just a lot. It is remarkable. And I wanted so badly to hear even more about her childhood because I bet she has fabulous stories about them and how her family worked and operated. And I want to know this secret to, you know, turning out three children who are all so successful and seemingly are all close today and, you know, are all thriving in this world. Yeah. I mean, Minda certainly is thriving and she's built a really powerful platform. um, And I feel lucky that we got to talk with her. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para and our male perspective, Lou Burns.